is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Here we go again. Again. Another mass shooting, shocking an already grieving nation. The latest at an elementary school in Texas, west of San Antonio. A shooter storming into a classroom, killing 19 kids and two teachers, 17 others hurt. This happened nearly 10 years after the Sandy Hook shooting left 26 people dead, 20 of them young children. But it's hardly been a decade since the last mass shooting in the country. Try days. The nation just got over the Buffalo supermarket shooting. That killed 10 people. And then there was the shooting in the church in Laguna Niguel. That left a doctor dead. The president addressing the country, calling for action to stop these mass shootings. But there's a lot of pessimism that it'll actually get done. The community in Texas and a country is at a loss because of all this. We'll go in depth to try to unravel the grief and why this keeps happening here and seemingly here only. We begin, though, with grief, trauma and moving forward from this tragedy as told by a survivor of the Columbine shooting that was in 1999. Casey Johnson was 17 that day. She wrote about her uh, ordeal in life since that in her book, Over My Shoulder, a Columbine Survivor's Story of Resilience, Hope, and a Life Reclaimed. Casey, thanks for being uh, with us. Um, it, it, it's hard to ask, how does one get over the kind of, of grief and tragedy that you went through in Columbine and what uh, the survivors and the parents of, of those who were who were killed in this latest shooting have to go through. But that fundamentally is the question, really, at the end of the day, is how do you end up, how did you end up coping with it? Yeah, th- um, thanks for having me, first of all. And second, there is no getting over it. Um, I'm not sure you can ever get over something like this. The thing for these people to keep in mind is that the normal they knew yesterday morning before this happened can never exist again. They are being thrown into a new, a new normal that they never asked for, that they didn't want, into a story they never wanted. And at this point, they don't know how to live that story. And that was the case for me for many years, struggling through severe post-traumatic stress disorder and fear and physical pain and mental anguish, just trying to figure out how to turn all the pain in my life into purpose, at which point then I found healing and um, was able to, you know, find some good out of all the things I'd been through. So what did you do and what is it like to have to relive this when you see it happen time and time again? Oh, it's so sad. I mean, there's the normal sadness that everybody feels for the loss of life. Um, it's just tragic, but then there's this other level of it for me, knowing the journey that these people are jumping into and that it can be pretty lonely as the rest of the world moves on with their life and you're stuck in this grief and figuring out what your new life looks like going forward. I I imagine that you must have had a lot of communication with other classmates who survived, right, uh, Columbine, and some of them uh, were, what, less successful than perhaps you've been in in dealing with this? Um, I don't know if I could call it successful. Everybody, um, I mean, if we're talking about success, I was not successful at thriving for a very long time. Um, We all have different 
circumstances that help us heal or not heal and different support groups and um, life perspectives that um, help us along the way. I know it was, it has been comforting for me over the years to talk with other people from Columbine and even just sit down and go through moment by moment. What was your experience like? This is what mine was like. And we will always have this connection of something that we survived together, even if we didn't know each other at the time. Do you still have hope that this gets fixed somehow? Did you have it after it happened to you? Did you lose it at some point? Take me on that kind of a a journey. Oh, my gosh. I never thought it would have happened the first time when it happened to me. And the idea that it keeps happening is um, horrible. I don't understand how people can do things like this to other people, even though I've seen it firsthand. I think we have... um, a human problem, first of all. And as long as sin and evil are a part of this world, it's going to be really hard to get rid of tragedies of any kind. Casey Johnson there was 17 when the uh, Columbine shooting happened in 1999. Survivor wrote about her ordeal uh, over my shoulder. Columbine survivor's story. Casey, thank you. Right now, President Biden addressed the country after the shooting from the White House. The president called on lawmakers to stand up to the gun lobby. The idea that an 18-year-old kid can walk into a gun store and buy two assault weapons is just wrong. Now, we've heard this talk before, but will anything get done now? Can grieving parents and family members use their sadness and turn that into action? With us is Rudy Espinoza-Murray, a volunteer leader with Moms Demand Action California chapter, Rudy could have been a victim, by the way, of the Pulse nightclub mass shooting in Orlando. That was in 2016. But a sleeping friend kept him away that particular night. We're also joined by Pasadena-based attorney Brian Claypool. He survived the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival shooting in Las Vegas. That was in 2017. And it was the deadliest modern mass shooting in U.S. history. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Um, Rudy, let's uh, begin our discussion with uh, you. So, uh, as you heard, the president is, is of course, taking issue at uh, uh, the gun lobbyists and, and put a, sort of really pointing, pointing a finger of blame, saying that it's time for the country to stand up to that lobbying group. And, of course, gun enthusiasts, it's this age-old argument in this country. They come back with, uh, you know, it's people who shoot people, not guns. People kill people. Guns don't kill people. That thing, you've heard that billions of times. So do you think that there is a middle ground? Do you think that there is some place, somewhere in the, in the middle of that ongoing argument where the two sides in this can agree? Hi, Charles. And to answer your question, that, that's yes. Uh, we see that there is policy that has been proposed that has support of over 90% of Americans. And the policy, universal background checks, red flag laws, right? Some common sense gun solutions that gun owners and gun aficionados are definitely in support of. Now, uh, we deserve to live without fear, but thanks to some of our weak gun laws and the gun lobby's relentless guns everywhere agenda, nowhere is safe and policies are stopped uh, right before they can pass in the Senate. I'll give you an example. HR 8 was passed by the House but failed to pass in the Senate because it was blocked by Republicans. 
So we see that there are possibilities for folks from both sides to meet in the middle, which is uh, agreeing on some of these common sense gun laws to get these forward. And these have been proven uh, to work when they are in place. Why do you think there's no appetites to not only meet in the middle, though, or just even creep towards the middle just a little bit? Instead, it becomes that discussion of, you know what, Uh, the other side's going to try to seize upon this moment and uh, don't let them politic. And then we go nowhere. Yeah, a lot of folks are afraid of the slippery slope argument, right? And I think that uh, if we think about other issues and we apply that to other issues, we wouldn't get anywhere. I heard today one of our elected leaders was talking about, you know, murder. Uh, it still happens, but it's still illegal. And we still do everything possible to avoid uh, folks being murdered. And it doesn't mean that we don't impose new policy to try to reduce that number. So I, I think a lot of elected officials are afraid of the response from the gun lobby uh, that they'll stop funding their campaigns, that they'll start funding uh, opposition candidates uh, to those folks. And that fear is what is keeping people from acting on something that should be so easy to to decide on, like these issues, right? We just lost 19 children, 19 children. And we can hear some folks talking about this is not the moment to politicize. This is a moment we should be, this is a moment to be silent for healing. No, quite the opposite. This is the moment where we need to be loud and speaking out so that we can call on our elected officials to act because clearly doing nothing has led to nothing. More guns has led to more gun violence. We are a country of 400 million guns and we are not safer than any other developing country in the world. In fact, quite the opposite. We have more gun deaths per capita than any other country in the world. All right, hold hold, uh, that thought and stay with us. Uh, Brian, let's bring you into the uh, discussion here. Um, Do you think that it it comes down to uh, the solution ultimately about restricting gun sales. Is that really the solution? Uh, some countries, of course, have very much stricter uh, requirements for getting guns, and of course they don't have these kinds of mass shootings. Uh, Australia had a, a, a rash of mass shootings at one point, and then they really tightened up their gun control laws, and they really haven't had any mass shooting since that time, so it was very successful there. But it almost seems like it's too simplistic, or or is it? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, It's not going to happen. Let me share with you that in in the middle of that Las Vegas mass shooting, when I was dodging bullets, and I could hear bullets hitting the metal around some of the bleachers I was in, I was saying to myself, if I survive this shooting, I'm going to get back into L.A., and I'm I'm, going to contact state and federal legislators, and we're going to get an assault weapon ban, right? I was so convinced. Came back to L.A., uh, I'm friendly with our current mayor, Eric Garcetti. He was kind enough to set up a meeting with U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. I met with her. I looked her in the face. It was six inches away from her face. I read, I read a birthday card that my daughter had written me uh, that I almost didn't get to read. I was in tears. She was in tears. She said, I'm going to go back to the Senate, and I'm going to reintroduce this assault weapon ban. It's gone nowhere. This is years later, what, 10, 15, 20 mass shootings later. What I, would, what I would encourage your listeners to do is forget about the assault weapon ban. It's never going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Where we should channel is what Rudy's talking about, right? H.R. 8. 
In fact, that was never voted on in the Senate, right? Passed the House, didn't get voted on in the Senate. Why would, why would a background check help? Because if you combine that with red flag laws, just so your listeners know, red flag laws is law enforcement can get in and confiscate guns of somebody who might be mentally unfit, somebody who might want to be carrying out mass violence. You don't need to wait a long time to get a court order. You can go in and seize the guns. Well, that helps. Why? Because if we get these red flag laws promulgated in states across the country, then that check or that mark goes on their background. Then you combine that with the background check. And next time these unfit folks want to try to go get a gun, they're not going to be able to get it. So that's a good starting point. You were making the point about the efficacy in your view, in your view of background checks and red flags. But here you have this latest uh, unfortunate and horrific incident in Texas where I wonder whether or not that would have been of any effect. Uh, this particular shooter, this young man, didn't apparently have any red flags, according to the law enforcement officials in Texas. He had no record of, of mental health issues. He had apparently no record of run-ins with the police. He was 18 and therefore, under Texas law, became legal to buy the weapons that he bought. So uh, not to suggest that it isn't always going to tighten up things that need to be tightened, but it wouldn't have helped here. Well, that, that's a good point, but I got two, two, two responses to that. Number one, here's another change we need to make. You can't buy an assault weapon until you're at least 21, right? You can't drink in most states until you're 21. Do you think your, mentally, your mental acuity should allow you to buy an assault weapon on the first day when you're 18? That's, that's, that's one thing. I don't think you're mature enough. And the second thing is this. I've been pushing for these for, for years since the Vegas shooting mandated reporter laws. What does that mean? I do a lot of sex abuse cases. We have, we have mandated reporter laws where people that are close to the inner circle of a child, if they suspect, quote, suspect that a child's been abused, they report that to law enforcement. We need similar laws in our country. How would that have helped here, to your point? Well, we all know that this 18-year-old this posted on the internet, I think it was Facebook, pictures of an AR-15, right? What did Facebook do? They just took the picture down and took his account off Facebook. If we had a mandated reporter law, and guess what? Social media would be defined as a mandated reporter. Then they should have contacted law enforcement. We need to create a stake for social media, for people in the inner circle to report suspected of violent behavior. That is, that is a way that we could possibly prevent mass shootings in the future. Rudy, what do you think about changing age limits for things because because don't so many of these happen with um, people who are in their late teens or or early 20s yeah charles i I couldn't agree with brian more we have a serious issue where children i mean when you're 18 years old you're a child i can think about all the stupid things i did when i was 18 years old that i would never do now as a father Uh, imagine giving that kind of firepower to an 18 year old who uh, has not fully developed yet. As as Brian mentioned, we don't even allow our 18-year-olds to drink alcohol for that same reason. And we should be logical and use common sense and think, hey, this is something that a, a child that's 18 years old should have access to. Um, so, so I think that there is an opportunity for us uh, to change policy, which would not affect our responsible gun owners, right? Because the reality is that gun... Guns are a part of our American culture since the founding of our country. It's in our Second Amendment, right? Right after freedom of speech, religion, and assembly. It's it's right there as number two. 
Uh, and guns aren't going away, but what we can do is figure out ways to be smarter about uh, gun ownership and gun safety and how and who we're allowing uh, uh, to have access to these guns as we see uh, that 18 year olds are not fit. Okay, we're, we're going to run out of time. So a very uh, quick question and a very quick yes or no from both of you gentlemen. Uh, do either one of you think there will be within the next, say, five years, any material change nationwide in the way people can buy guns? Yes or no? Uh, yeah, this is Brian. I, I think we will get a background check law passed, and I think we will get, we will get more red flag laws. And this is Rudy. I say yes, but without action, it's not going to happen. People out there, listeners, you got to reach out to your elected officials and you got to vote for folks that are going to make this a priority. Rudy Espinoza Murray, a volunteer leader, Moms Demand Action, the California chapter in Pasadena based attorney, Brian Claypool. Thanks to you both. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We're learning more about what led up to the shooting massacre at the elementary school in Texas yesterday. Two law enforcement officials telling CBS the shooter got into an argument with his grandma before everything started and shot her. How is the uh, community reacting to all this? Uh, Dennis Foley is a reporter at KTSA-TV in San Antonio. And Sanford Nowlin is editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Current. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Uh, Dennis, let's uh, start with you. Uh, On this day after, give us a a kind of quick uh, rundown of what's happening in the community and how it's dealing with it. Yeah, so today it's a lot of getting updates. So we heard from the governor couple hours ago, uh, giving more of a, a timeline of what happened um, and just getting reassurances that um, the, we more or less have a final count on those who are dead, getting a firm number on those who are injured, knowing that their injuries are non-life-threatening and that the families have been contacted. And uh, now we're hearing more from families, um, they're, they're the victims that um, have been affected by this and, and what they're going through and basically the stories of the people directly affected by this mass shooting. And this is one of those places that's still small enough where really everybody knows each other or at least uh, has heard of each other a little bit. So the whole community, for obvious reasons, just just must be rocked. Yeah. And, it's, you know, the town of about 16,000 people, um, it's fairly remote. You know, it's the closest big city, San Antonio, and that's an hour and a half away. Um, you know, it's halfway between San Antonio and the Mexican border. Um, so it, it's a tight knit area. It's an area where, you know, you likely know the people that you go to school with for your whole life. And if you live there, you grew up there, it's, you know, everyone. Sanford, uh, I'm wondering if, uh, because Texas has had uh, perhaps a, a disproportionate number of mass shootings in, in recent history, if it's becoming almost a, a shocking sort of new normal, if it's even possible to call it that. But is it becoming that? Yeah, I, I think there's a sense of weariness, you know, from the people I've talked to, you know, because counting the Uvalde massacre, these mass shooting incidents uh, have claimed the lives of 108 people in Texas since 2009. And, you know, let's be honest, that qualifies as an epidemic, you know, Um and, and I, I've, you know, been looking at some of the numbers on this stuff, uh, and it's not just happening in Texas. Active shooter cases in the United States increased 50 percent from 2020 to 2021, according to FBI crime statistics. And 
the country has already experienced 198 mass shootings between January and May of this year. But that said, you know, I mean, it does seem especially profound in, in, in Texas, um, you know, and it's highlighted, I think, by the fact that the Texas legislature and our governor passed a, you know, a bill in two uh, in uh, 2021, that, that basically allows pretty much anybody to, to carry a, a, a firearm without a permit or training. Uh, and that was not, I, I know Texas is painted as a pro-gun um, state, and certainly people like to hunt and like to own guns, but that was, that was not a popular piece of legislation. Uh, polls showed it was supported by about a third of Texans, yet uh, you know, I, I attended the uh, the signing of this thing uh, at the Alamo, where uh, the governor, lieutenant governor, and the uh, you know the house leader was. Uh, all three of them were seated next to Wayne Lapierre of uh, the NRA. You know, chumming it up as this thing went down. Um, you know, I, I think I think the political situation. I think the unwillingness, the apparent unwillingness of the leaders of this state to do anything about, um, you know, sort of reining in, uh, you know, the, the possibility that people who don't need firearms get their hands on firearms have really left people exhausted. I, I, I you know, I, people on my own staff, it, it just seems like we're, you know, th this one hits especially hard because it's closed and, and because it involves children. The, the NRA convention is in the state soon, right? This this weekend. How is yeah, that weekend. going over with yeah. people? Yeah, I, I you know, uh, I the last I've heard from Abbott's camp is that they're not saying whether or not he'll attend. He was supposed to speak. Ted Cruz was supposed to speak. Uh, our other senator, John Cornyn. Uh, miraculously developed a a, uh, a conflict that w that uh, you know that he's pulling out because yeah. of it was interesting that the uh, nobody was aware of this conflict that caused him to cancel uh, until after the shooting. But you know, scheduling issue. Uh, Sanford Nowlin, editor in chief, San Antonio Current. Dennis Foley, reporter, KTSA TV in San Antonio. Thanks to you both. Well, this mass shooting in Texas is just, of course, the latest in a string of mass shootings over the past month. People blame guns, mental health problems, uh, bad parenting for what happens. Big questions are, why does this keep happening? Can we identify a problem before it starts? With us is Lori Post, director of the Bueller Center for Health Policy and Economics at Northwestern University, the Feinberg School of Medicine. She researches mass shootings. Lori, thank you for being with us. Uh, given that field, given what you know, what's it like still for you every time one of these happens? And they happen frequently. They happen way too frequently. They're horrible. And just because um, they keep happening doesn't mean it makes it feel worse. It's awful. And I can't imagine the families and friends of those um, that die. Okay, so you, as we said, research mass shootings. What conclusions, yeah. if any, have you come up with? Well, I have been looking at mass shootings since 1966. And um, during that time period, we had a national ban on machine gun types or assault weapons, and then also a, a ban on large capacity magazines between 1994. Unfortunately, that law sunsetted in 2004. And during that time period, we saw a significant reduction in mass shootings and lethality and number of people injured. And then as soon as the 
the federal assault weapons ban sunsetted, we saw a massive uptick in mass shootings. And if we had kept it in place, we probably would have prevented 30 um, public mass shootings between 2004 and 19 or 2019 that would have um, prevented 339 deaths and 1,139 injuries. So basically, um, a ban on assault weapons is a, a common sense law. It works. Uh, we don't need large capacity magazines and we don't need assault weapons. There's just no need for it. What are some of the other things that also would work if they became law? Well, I think that there's, you know, there's a whole, a lot of different types of, of gun violence. You know, the most common, of course, is suicide by gun and then homicide and injuries by gun. And just locking them up or, or putting a, a gun lock on or a lock on the guns or putting them in a gun safe would um, help reduce um, injuries and death significantly. But every, you know, every type of gun violence has a different policy solution um, for mass shootings specifically. I think just this uh, a ban on assault weapons and large capacity magazines, but also background checks would be helpful because mass shooters um, always work their way up. They always have ongoing escalating problematic behavior where they threaten to um, commit violence. They threaten to, or they write out, you know, letters about how they want to kill as many people as possible. They admire other mass shooters. Um, and they are also seeking and craving attention that they, they need. So not to give that to them. So, Anyways, so they, so, they also I would say domestic violence and child abuse also correlate strongly with mass shooting. So in, in your, in your view then is the, the sole thing or the most important thing that separates the U S from other countries where they don't routinely have mass shootings the way we do is the, is the primary thing the the ban or what used to be a ban on assault rifles and if we only had that we would be on par with you know say western europe or even canada yeah yeah i mean well here's the thing is a lot of countries don't ha allow guns or public carry of guns there's absolutely no need for all the guns that we have but americans want their guns so if we're going to have guns at least let's have common sense policy but we are like a heavily armed country and texas is more armed than any other state so it just makes more sense um they're going to have more mass shootings in other states. There's a few things we see every time, and, and one of them is the line, well, you, you need more of the good guys with guns. How many of these, if we have numbers, have actually been prevented or stopped with a good guy, non-police officer, with a gun? Well, so I don't know of any, actually. And you can see what happened yesterday is like there were a couple of um, security guards with guns, and that did nothing to stop them. So actually having a gun, gun in your house, gun on your person, increases the likelihood of you being um, killed in a homicide or the likelihood of a suicide. It does not decrease the likelihood of a mass shooting. It increases gun violence. So the solution, like, so after El Paso, there, I think, were, I think there were 16, 17 bills that were passed. Most of them were about arming the public. And we can't put the onus on school teachers to teach our children and then also be their social worker and take care of them and take care of their problems and help them to learn um, and then also protect them with guns. It's just not going to work. If security guards can't do it who are trained or police officers get injured or killed, um, they can't and they can't um, they can't stop these from happening. Then it's it's um, not likely that teachers are going to be able to do that as well. You know, uh, we mentioned earlier in the show that the NRA is having uh, its convention, I believe, on Friday and in Texas, uh, perhaps ironically. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to prejudge what they're going to say. I don't know, but I suspect from 
from past uh, uh, NRA conventions, the message was going to be something along the lines of, uh, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, that sort of thing. Uh, When you hear that, and I'm sure you've heard that now, uh, ad nauseum, what goes through your mind? So I think the NRA should stay in its own lane. Um, And by that, I mean, I'm a member of the NRA. That's where I went to learn, um, you know, gun safety from years ago, an old person. So um, NRA should stay in their own lane. And that's what they did really good was to gun safety, gun training, where you learn about guns, how to shoot them, how to store them safely. Um, um, But they're now into politics and that becomes very dangerous. And having this mantra of increasing um, guns in the general population um, just basically increase the risk of more suicides and deaths and accidental shootings. Do you have hope for us that we're going to get this right eventually? I hope so. It's been so long. You know, I was there, um, you know, living in Connecticut during Sandy Hook, and that was so awful. And there was a lot of movement that made on it. But then, you know, people were just rejecting it. And I think the best policy really went into place in 1994, and it stayed for 10 years. And we know that worked on reducing mass shootings. So why not adopt that? And the other thing is we can't do it state by state because we're only as good as our weakest link. And so we're better we're better off with a federal policy because um, anybody in any state can get in their car and drive three or four hours and be in you know, one of many states to grab guns if their own state doesn't allow the purchase of assault weapons and large capacity magazines. Lori Post, director of the Bueller Center for Health Policy and Economics at uh, Northwestern University. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Mass shootings that target random victims seem to be almost a uniquely American problem, but it wasn't always that way. Australia, for example, had a big problem before lawmakers there took action. New Zealand banned most semi-automatic weapons following mass shootings at two mosques in Christchurch. With us is Daniel Webster co-director of the Center for Gun Violence at Johns Hopkins University. Daniel, thanks for being here. So so what is the problem here? Is it that it is so built in literally to the Constitution? Well, I, I can't deny that the um, our Second Amendment is one constraint on our response to this problem of gun violence generally and specifically as it relates to uh, fatal mass shootings. Um, I have I feel compelled to say that that was really not the case until 2008, uh, where the Supreme Court uh, took a very different turn from precedent and decided to interpret the Second Amendment differently than the courts in the past, granting an, an individual right uh, to possess guns in the home. And now, of course, we are staring down a, a decision that will come down, uh, you know, any any week now from the current Supreme Court that is going to even go further. Uh, We don't know exactly what they'll do, but um, the court, recent court uh, uh, decisions have changed the parameters of what's possible. And when you say change the parameters, what's possible, in other words, making it easier to possess guns, is that it? Yeah, or honestly, uh, in the reverse, making it harder to pass certain types of regulations. I I still should say that um, in the broader discourse, there's a great misunderstanding of what the Second Amendment says or or what courts have said about it. The vast majority of regulations that we've had in place uh, to address firearms have withstood Second Amendment challenges. 
Um, so I still think, obviously, there's a lot we can do within the, uh, you know, the Constitution as it's currently interpreted, uh, Constitution is currently interpreted, and, and even within our political constraints as well. Well, right. No, no rights is unlimited. You can put constraints on it. You just have to have the political will to do it. Yeah, and, and you have to have the proper justification. You can't do it willy-nilly. You can't do it in a discriminatory fashion. It has to be connected to a public interest. And obviously, there's a public interest in um, keeping us safe from gun violence. I mean, is there, other than the, the Second Amendment, uh, is it, though, that there is perhaps something just fundamentally different about Americans compared to people in some other countries where they seem to have a much better handle on being able to prevent gun violence? Because if there is a will, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because there's truth in it. Where there's a will, there's a way. And it seems as if there isn't a sufficient will in this country. I think that's what the president was alluding to yesterday in his speech, that there isn't a sufficient will in this country to kind of get a handle on this and to try to 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 snuff this sort of thing out. And that does raise the question, and there's no other way of asking it, whether there's something fundamentally different about <laughs> Americans. So I'm going to push back a little bit on that general idea. I, I think when when we do national polls all the time, actually, we ask them a broad range of questions about how they feel about guns and, and regulations on, on guns. And uh, we see large majorities of Americans support much stricter gun laws than what we have. So it's not as though we're you know, as a people so completely opposed to regulating guns. There are some structural differences, though, in our government versus other Western democracies. Um, we have far greater influence uh, among rural populations uh, than we do among urban populations. That's just really built into the structure of our government, sadly. And some recent court decisions, you know, sort of put even more constraints on that with respect to uh, districting and, and such. So I, I think some of our problems are that we literally have structures that uh, pull us apart as, a, as one country and uh, keep us from being able to solve problems. Uh, you referenced the uh, Australian uh, experience when they experienced a, a horrible mass shooting. Um, actually, a more conservative government was in place when they decided to make some changes uh, when they saw the tragic consequences of, of a horrific mass shooting. Um, I, I don't know whether, you know, I, I think that's harder to do in this country because of how we structure our government uh, uh, currently and just we give far more power to the extremes uh, than do other Western democracies. Have we also in the, fallen in the, in and, the structure of their government? As we often do, have we also just fallen right into our, our talking points? You know, the sides split up after each of these, and it's either a gun problem or a mental health issue. But you know what? All the other countries have people with mental health issues. That's not just us. Exactly. Yes, that we fall into the same sort of uh, talking points, and we're only listening within our own bubbles, right? And 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 that's sad. So I think if we 
want to solve this problem, and I desperately think that we do, we have to get more comfortable about going outside of our bubbles, listening to people, listening to, to other people's concerns. I think that there there are solutions that are acceptable to people. We have to build some trust, and it's going to take time, um, and and it's going to take, quite honestly, some brave politicians. All right, but, but let me for a second push back on your pushback. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Uh, do you think that that one of the issues, and I'm not saying it's the only one, but that perhaps Americans, just by our our look through our own history, are just at some level more prone to resort to violence as a way to uh, solve particular problems than some other folks are? You know, there's evidence to to back up that argument, and there's evidence against it. So it, it's complex. So, yeah, I mean, we, uh, we have a history of violence in our country, without a doubt, uh, with our Native population, with, uh, you know— uh, Decades of slavery. Uh, I mean, there's so many ways that you can um, describe our country as being a violent country. But if you look at basic metrics of violent behavior, uh, violent crime, uh, bullying in schools, fighting in schools, a variety of kind of just basic measures of violent behavior, and you compare um, the United States with, again, our sort of Western democ uh, democratic uh, industrialized nations, we do not stand out on any of those metrics of violence except for one, and that is our lethal violence. Our lethal violence is about, <clears throat> excuse me, eight times, I mean, eight times higher than the average of our uh, other countries more similar to us. And it's because our rates of gun homicide are over 20 times higher than the average. So I think that, yes, of course, we have a violent history and some aspects of our culture um, uh, is too accepting of violence. But again, it's useful to have some points of comparison with other countries, of, the, of course, that also have histories of violence, their own histories of violence. And and our, our present day um, metrics for measuring violent behavior, the only the only way that we are exceptional is guns. Daniel Webster, co-director of the Center for Gun Violence at Johns Hopkins University. Daniel, thank you. We did reach out to several gun rights organizations to come on the show today. Got a statement from the Second Amendment Foundation. It says legitimate, law-abiding American gun owners are today as outraged and saddened as everyone else by the horrible acts. It um, went on to say if there's blame beyond the killer, it must be shared by political leaders whose policies have turned public schools into soft targets and by self-appointed activists and school boards that have resisted school resource officer programs. It says retired military and law enforcement professionals can easily protect our school children. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.